This is a special day. Yes. It is the day celebrating the triumphant entry of yes. Jesus Christ in, into Jerusalem. A day that is very uh, mind-worthy, I guess, that we need to be thinking about. We, and you know, there's a, there always seems to be a counterfeit for everything that God's doing. And it seems so true to that. There always seems to be a counterfeit. And this is no different. Uh, so often down through the years, and I'll probably get into that more, but so often down through the years, paganism and Christianity have tried to do this, this weird little marriage. And this is one of those that we uh, often hear of Lent. And I didn't honestly know what Lent was uh, too much, and so I did a little bit of studying in it. And there's a reason why virtually any fundamental or evangelical church will not, does not take part in Lent. Um, Lent is not in the Bible. Is our, is our uh, equipment spontaneously working? It might be the heater. Spontaneously working. Um, huh. We like to use at work. <laughs> Lent is not in the Bible, and that's why most churches don't, do not uh, celebrate it. It's a 40-day period that starts with Ash Wednesday and ends with what is often called Easter. And, and we get such a habit of, of, of Easter, and Easter is not a biblical holiday. Easter is a pagan holiday. The Bible mentions Easter in one place, but... It is not in the context that we understand Easter to be. And this tendency, I guess, to amalgamate uh, Christianity and paganism it has happened ever since the Middle Ages. Uh, do I have a problem with celebrating the resurrection? Absolutely not. I don't really like the idea of celebrating Easter. And I'll get into a little bit of why that is. But the day before the holiday time is called Carnival, or Mardi Gras. And it's a festival that honored Bacchus and other pagan gods and goddesses. That's what this time of the year has always meant in, in the pagan realms. Ultimately, it's synchronized. The Catholic Church synchronized it with their religion. Uh, Lent means Lenten, springtime, time of lengthening, or of flowering. It's basically celebrating... The new life of springtime. Uh, it's, it was celebrated by Hyatt, the riotous festivals honoring goddesses of fertility in springtime. It was, uh, it was uh, symbolized by a goddess of fertility named Estra. Uh, now see, this is what happened in the Middle Ages. Though. This time, and it's much like today, if you go down to Mardi Gras, I have never been there, thank God, please don't ever make me go. Um, but if you go there, you're going to see crazy, insane festivals, festivities in the streets. They have this weird thing I've heard about beads, something about beads and women taking their tops off. Not sure what that is all about. Don't want to really know. But it's just a crazy time of festivities and partying and rioting. It's been that way ever since the Middle Ages. But see, the Catholic Church got bothered because it seemed like the world and pagans had so much fun. They had all these festivities and these festivals and had a great time and scores of people went to it. And the, the church didn't have that kind of a draw, so they kind of amalgamated. They created a, a union between the pagan festivities and they created a supposed Christian 
festival at the same time frame. Uh, Estra, uh, the whole month of Est April is dedicated to this goddess of fertility named Estra. She's the one that changed a bird into a rabbit. That's where we get a rabbit for Easter. <laughs> Okay. Rabbits symbolize springtime or fertility. Anybody ever raise rabbits? <laughs> well, boy! You have two, and then you go out, and you have dozens. <laughs> they are definitely fertile. Uh, eggs also symbolize fertility, springtime, and life. The Latin proverb says all life comes from an egg. That's where the egg came from during this time of the year. It is, uh, it is a 40-day time not counting Sundays, according to the Catholic canon law. See, what happened is they had to come up with a 40-day thing somewhere. So they reached into Scripture, and they grabbed hold of Jesus' time in the wilderness where he was being tempted, and they said, oh, that's what we're celebrating during this time. It really has nothing to do with that scripturally. As I said, there's no... Uh, there's this, the, the idea of Lent is not... It's just not in the Bible. Uh, Alexander Hislop, a uh, very old uh, theologian, said about this thing, he said, to conciliate the pagans, get that, that, that right there is a sermon, to conciliate the pagans to nominal Christianity, Rome, pursuing its usual policy, took measures to get the Christians and pagan festivities amalgamated. And by a complicated but skillful adjustment of the calendar, it was found no difficult matter in general to get paganism and Christianity now far sunk in idolatry and as in this as so many other things to shake hands. Basically, he said they created a holiday by manipulating a calendar to, to make Christianity and paganism come together. Turn with me if you would to the book of John. And I want to look at what we're really celebrating. I don't have a problem with celebrating uh, something biblical. John chapter 12. And I tried really hard not to call this season Easter. And it's such a habit, I guess. It's really hard to not do it. I would much rather call it the resurrection. Because that's what it is. John chapter 12. In this time of triumphant entry, triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and last year I did a, a whole series, or a whole, uh, I don't know, story of, uh, of how it all came together in the 70 weeks of Daniel and how it all uh, pointed to Daniel specifically gave the time for, for Jesus to come in, and the people had no idea what was going on when Jesus came into town on that very specific day as prophesied according to Scripture. Um, and I thought it was a fun study, and I hope it was interesting. I want to look at a little different uh, ramification of this. What happened? The triumphant, the triumphal entry on one Sunday, and four days later, the same people cry, "Crucify him!" Wow, what a change! John chapter twelve, verse nine. John twelve, verse nine. Says much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only. Well, there's a clue. That's what the FBI calls a clue. And they that but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. Well, that's brilliant for you. 
Guy died, Jesus raises him from the dead, so let's kill him again. Guess that made sense to them. Because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him, and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold... Thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. And thing, these things understood not his disciples at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they these things were written of him, and they, that they had done these things all unto him. And the people, therefore, that was with him, when he called Lazarus out of the grave and raised him from the dead, bear record, for this cause the people also met him. For that they heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing. Behold, the world is gone after him. Father, I pray that you will help us to understand what this means and what is so important here, Lord. Help us to focus on the important and put away the, the unimportant, the, the baseless, the meaningless, Lord. Help us to embrace your word today. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll give me just a moment to have a glass of drink of water. Ah, much better. So Jesus is fulfilling a very important prophecy of Scripture. He's coming on the very day prophesied, to do the very thing prophesied. He is coming as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to show the world I am truly the Almighty God. Nobody else rides into Jerusalem this way and gets that recognition. It was only Jesus Christ. He was fulfilling a tremendous role. And the people responded to that. They see Jesus coming into town and they are exuberant. They are excited. They're ripping down palm branches and throwing it in front of the, the cult. They're, they're excited to see what's going on. That They are dancing and shouting and, and celebrating the king coming into town. And then you have to say, what possibly happened in four days to take away that celebratory spirit or that, that, that time of rejoicing? What happened? I often tell people, and my wife has heard it many times down through the years, that I am absolutely the worst at expectations. I have a certain family member that likes to, to do this to me. He does little things or says little things, and I am supposed to react a certain way. Any wives ever do that to their husbands? <laughs> I did this certain thing. Now, you were supposed to say that, but you didn't. I, 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 I did this, or I did that, or I said this, or I said that, and they already have in their mind, this is exactly how you're supposed to react to what I just did. I am the worst. I fail every time. <laughs> I speak at expectation. If you throw an expectation at me, I'll guarantee you I will miss it. <laughs> I'm terrible at it. This is a problem that Israel had with Jesus. He was the king. They understood that. At this point, let me back. Did they understand it? No. They they recognized it to a degree. They they thought 
Here comes the King. Here comes the One. He is the One that's going to free us. See, this is a period of time that had been over 200 years since Israel had experienced freedom. 200 years. They were, and there's a significance to the palm branches. You know, the palm branches weren't just a random act. If you'll go back to the Apocrypha, which are not scripture, but they are an interesting books sometimes, and they have some interesting history in them, and they have some craziness in them, but there is some valid history there. You'll read the book of First and Second Maccabees, which tells about a war that took place basically 200 years before this event when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. And what happened is Israel was under Syrian rule and control during that time. And uh, Judas Maccabees and his brothers, uh, these were tough boys. They were sons of a priest, but they were very tough. In fact, Judas Maccabees was called the Hammer. So any uh, WWF wrestler that's called the Hammer nowadays, I don't know if there is one, he's, he's a copycat. The real Hammer was way back then. So... Judas Maccabees led a revolt against Syria, and Israel was free. They experienced for the first time in many, many years freedom, and they, were, they loved Judas Maccabees. He was elevated to king of Israel. And as they often have as a symbol, Judas Maccabees' symbol was a palm leaf. That was his symbol. See, Israel, when they saw Jesus coming into town, they had Judas Maccabees on the mind, and they thought, Jesus is coming to deliver us from the, the rule of the Romans. They were excited about that idea. Rip down palm branches. He is our modern Judas Maccabees. He is going to set us free. And Jesus failed to meet their expectation. What they thought he was going to do didn't take place. And you see, some uh, celebrity worship Celebrity adoration is very fickle. You ever notice that? You know, I saw an article the other day that was, it said, uh, I think it said 10 or 12, whatever, uh, celebrities that Hollywood has forgotten. I thought, well, that's interesting. So I was starting to look through there. Some of the names like Nicolas Cage, uh, Steven Seagal. And like, you know, those guys used to be big time. They were big. And now they're saying they're, they can't even hardly find a job in Hollywood. That's how celebrity worship is. They love you until you fizzle a little bit, and then they forget about you really quickly. Jesus was experiencing this at this point a celebrity worship. He was a celebrity coming into town, and everybody was excited that, that the celebrity was coming into town. Why? Because they recognized that he was the king of glory? Because they recognized that he was the son of God? Because they recognized that he was the almighty king of kings and lord of lords? No, they recognized he was the one that raised Lazarus from the dead. <laughs> there was, therein lies the problem. This guy raised Lazarus from the Did you see that? Yeah, did you check out when he, when he healed that one over there? Woo! We got people chasing sensationalism all over the country all the time. Today. Things, some things never changed. Let's go to so-and-so's tip revival because he did this or he did that or he did the other thing. You ever notice when you go to one of those meetings, it might be, this might be a rabbit trail, you ever notice when you go to one of those meetings and they have the big name and he gets up there, what's he do? For an hour he tells you all the things that happened at the last meeting. 
Oh, we raised one from the dead there, and then there was this one that his arm fell off, and we put it back on, and they go on and on about, oh man, did God move there? But it never happens in the meeting I'm in. Really weird how that works. It's always a meeting before the one I was at. And so this celebrity worship was because they were coming to see what Jesus did. They didn't recognize who Jesus was. And there's a problem when we're looking at the wrong guy. And verse 18 says, For this cause the people also met him, for they heard that he had done this miracle. They were coming and saying, I want to see something today. I want to see something today. It's kind of like maturity. When you're six years old and your daddy comes in from working out of town for a week, what do you do? You run up there and you say, what did you get me? You know, that's just what kids do. You kids ever do that? They run up and say, what did you get me? But when you get older, you actually run up because you love the person. You don't care if the person got you anything. It's about a relationship with the person. Israel didn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They were just following Jesus Christ. It's one thing to have, be a follower of Christ. It's another thing to be a disciple of Christ. We have a huge amount of people in America today that are following Jesus. But they don't really know Jesus. Uh, Ray Comfort. One of my friends, and I told you many times, I am a, a sermon junkie. I love to listen to sermons. Good, good preaching, I love it. Bad preaching, I can't stand it. Ray Comfort preaches one of my favorite sermons of all time. It's called Hell's Best Kept Secrets. In that sermon, he tells a, an illustration, and he's talking about how uh, we have a problem with so many people supposedly giving their lives to the Lord, and so few of them actually sticking with it. We lose, and he gives statistics of how many uh, just seem to fall away. And he said, here's the problem. We sell them a wrong Jesus. We sell them a wrong gospel. And he illustrates it by saying, it's like when somebody's about ready to take a flight, and you go up to them and you say, hey, you need to put on this parachute, because this parachute's going to be so cool to you. You're going to look so cool in this parachute, you're going to get on that plane, and it's going to be so comfortable, and it looks good, and you're going to just be styling, and, and it's going to be make your flight so much better if you wear this parachute. And so the guy puts on the parachute, and he thinks, oh, this is great, I got the, I'll do it. Yeah, you betcha, I'll accept that. He puts on that parachute, and he gets on that plane, and immediately everybody starts mocking him, saying, what an idiot, why are you wearing a parachute? There's nothing wrong with the plane, you dummy. And then he tries to sit in the seat, and he realizes that parachute is so uncomfortable. This is terrible to wear this parachute. I don't like this at all. And pretty soon he just stands up, grabs the parachute, and throws it away, and says, I don't want that anymore. They sold the wrong idea. He said, but if you go up to somebody who's getting on a plane, and you say, I have reason to believe that that plane's going to crash, you better wear this parachute. It's going to be uncomfortable. You're not going to really like it all the time, and people are going to laugh at you. But put on the parachute, because it will save your life. That person will then put on the parachute, and they're perfectly satisfied to get on the plane and let everybody laugh at them. They're good with that, because they're warned about that. They knew it was going to happen. They get in the seat, it's uncomfortable, and they say, that's okay. I'll live with the discomfort, because... Uh, that's just part of the deal, but I'm going to be saved. It's okay. You get what I'm saying? This is what we do with Christianity. You come to Jesus and all your problems will go away. 
your, your, your kids will act right, your wife will behave, your husband won't be an idiot, the house will always be clean, the mortgage will always be paid, the car will never break down. Man, you come to Jesus and all your problems go away. The dog won't even poop in the yard anymore. You just come to Jesus. And people come to Jesus and they quickly realize that that's not at all what they were. This is nothing like what I was told. I still have problems. They still go bad. Now I have family members who won't talk to me because I'm following this Jesus. And people are laughing at me and it's uncomfortable at times and never, not everything is wonderful all the time and I don't like this anymore. And they walk away from it. But instead, they need to realize it wasn't about what we get right now. It's going to be uncomfortable. There's a price to pay for serving Jesus. You remember when they used to preach that serving Jesus would cost you everything? Not often preached anymore. Let me tell you something, folks. If you're going to worship Jesus Christ, it's going to cost you everything. Amen. It won't always be comfortable, and everything's not always going to go right. In fact, I would think it's better to tell them, you come to Jesus and you thought you had problems, you ain't seen nothing yet. Yeah. Amen. You're going to see what problems are all about, but there's a difference because when you walk through those problems, you're going to have the King of Glory with you, and the Holy Spirit will walk with you. You will never face a problem alone. You're going to have problems, and they may be bigger than what you have now, but let Jesus Christ be there, and you will never walk a problem alone. Amen. The Spirit of God will be with you. Yes. We have sold this false idea of Jesus. And Christianity today, preachers today are preaching this silly idea of Jesus. And a lot of people that are considered leaders that people have great faith in. We have millions of people that tune into Bill O'Reilly all the time. <sighs> you look up arrogant in the dictionary. His picture's right next to Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> He wrote a book recently, it's called Killing Jesus. It's supposed to be a historical book, get, getting all the facts. He said, we just got down to the facts. Down to the facts. We're no no uh, mythology in there, no, no craziness. We just got down to the facts. Now, millions of people are buying this book. It's going off the shelves as fast as they can print it. But in this book, Bill O'Reilly, fortunately he was so good to tell us who Jesus really was. It turns out that Jesus was a very fearful man. He was afraid, a very terrified man everywhere he went. He was scared to death, uh, basically, every day of his life. Nowhere in the book does he mention that Jesus Christ was the Son of God because he said, well, I only wanted to stick to historical facts. I didn't want to bring mythology into it or religion. Bill O'Reilly says in this book that when the Bible records that Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. While he was hanging on the cross, he said, well, we don't really believe that happened. At least not on the cross. Uh, he probably said that when he was being whipped. And I, as soon as I, and I'm watching these clips of him saying this in different interviews and, and during his program, and I'm sitting there thinking, you arrogant. <laughs> you arrogant little joker, you. Really? You mean eyewitnesses who saw it and recorded it right then should not be believed, but a guy 2,000 years after the fact, he's the one that really knows what happened. Have you ever heard such a height of arrogance? He says, well, it couldn't have happened that way because they didn't even allow people at the base of the cross, and because of the condition that Jesus was in at the time, there's no way he could have verbalized it to the point that they could have heard it with their ears. So obviously it did not happen during the time of the cross. It had to have happened when he was being with 
And I think a big dummy ever heard of the supernatural? This was Almighty God. He could have thundered it from the mountaintops across the world and every year on the planet could heard it. He is Almighty God. And when the word of the living God written by eyewitnesses says that Jesus was hanging on a cross and he looked out across the crowd and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I don't care what Bill O'Reilly says. I'm sticking to the word of God. We've we've falsified this this idea of who Jesus is. And then Bill O'Reilly gives us a real reason why Jesus was crucified. Thank God. (laughs) We didn't know before him. Jesus was actually crucified over taxes. <laughs> and see, this is the problem. And he goes on to explain that Jesus had went into the temple and he pushed over the money changers' tables and he and he beat them and hit them and threw them out and and refused to pay the temple tax and that's why he was crucified. That's not what the book says. It had nothing to do with what happened at the temple. They may not have been too happy with him, but Scripture records that Jesus paid his taxes to Caesar. He paid his temple tax. So I was listening to Brandon House on this, and he said, I'd love to ask Bill O'Reilly, what tax did they crucify him over? Because he paid the temple taxes, and he paid the civil taxes, and those were the only two taxes of the day. So which one did he pay that caused him to be killed? Let me tell you something. It had nothing to do with taxes, folks. It had to do with your sin and mine. That's why Jesus was killed. It had nothing to do with not paying a bill. See, they want to carnalize everything. There's a rational, carnal reason why it happened. But it says right here in the book, the real reason that they wanted to kill Jesus is because all the world was going after him. Oh, you talk about you talk about something that's going to cause action. Let a politician feel like he's losing power. Amen. Oh, they'll they'll act. Let a, let a corrupt religious leader believe that he is losing power. There will be action. The problem is they had the wrong idea of who Jesus was. And we have the wrong idea that so much of America today has a wrong idea of who Jesus is. We keep thinking that he is some soft, uh, hippie, uh, pansy, uh, wimp, who loves everybody just like they are, will accept you exactly as you are, and never judges you, and never condemns you. And and they need to get into the Word of God, because I tell you what, this book says that if you reject Him, you are condemned already. Yes. This book, I see Jesus as a strong man. I'm getting on rabbit trails again, I know. We often see pictures and references to Jesus being this long-haired what we would consider a 1960s hippie throwback. It's kind of fun to look at historically because Paul makes reference and he says that a man having long hair was a shame. Do you know if you look at it historically, it was a shame? Men in Jesus' day did not have long hair. The only ones that did were under a direct Nazarite vow. Jesus was not under a Nazarite vow. Let me tell you how I picture Jesus. And maybe this is me. Maybe this is my bias. I picture Jesus as a man's man. Yeah, he was a carpenter. He was a carpenter. He was tough. He had big, strong hands, big, strong arms. He was a man. I believe that, that Jesus was the type that, that could arm wrestle and, and go fishing and go hunting. And, 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 and 
I, I think he was a man who wasn't afraid to stand up and be a man. I don't see him as a sissified whim. I think he said, guys, let's go do something. Let's go. Let's get her done. And he got it done. I don't think there was anything soft about the God that we serve. But soft does not translate into love. We in America got this idea that love is soft. It's always got to be soft. You coddle and pander and, and, and pet and all that. Well, sometimes love beats your tail when you need it. Yes. Sometimes love closes the door when you want to go through it. Sometimes love tells you no. Sometimes love is hard and almost seems harsh. But sometimes that's required. We want to love sinners so much. And sometimes a sinner needs to be told that their life is sin. And they're not going to like it when they hear that. But that's sometimes what love is all about. It's far more hateful to me. I just think it's so cruel to see somebody in sin and act all, all spiritual and go up and say, oh, it's good, you're good. God loves you just like you're doing. I think it's far more loving to go up there and say, you're in adultery and you need to repent and get out of that. Amen. Yes. Far more loving to give them the truth than it is to pander them and coddle them and pat them on the back. Israel had a completely warped idea of who this guy was riding into town on the cult of an ass. They had a completely warped idea. And when he didn't meet the expectations, it infuriated them. When they looked at that, they expected a defeater of Rome to come into town. This military leader. And you see a little bit of that when, when Peter whipped the sword out and chopped the dude's ear off. And Peter was ready. It's time. I've been following him and it's time. Let's battle this thing down. Am I the only one that's been just kind of bad, happy over the way that the, the ranchers in Nevada beat up the defense? You know? It would be hard to not say good job. You know? That's where Peter was. It's time. We've been playing around for two years, three years. Let's get her done. Jesus is like, oh, that's not what I'm about. This isn't about war. It is about the kingdom of God. Yes. He didn't come to defeat Rome, but he came to defeat the one who gave power to Rome. Amen. Yes. He didn't come to defeat the, the unrighteous system. He came to defeat the one who empowers an unrighteous system. The, the, the enemy of their soul. They were still so temporal thinking, I'm going to get, I'm going to get, I'm going to get. It's like when our current president came to power, the giddy people that were like, oh, I'm going to get everything now. It's going to be given to me now. That mentality is not new. It's been around for a long time. But I want to tell you, the real Jesus is the one who breaks burdens. The real Jesus is the one who gives freedom. The real Jesus is the one who gives joy and peace. You can say little Christian bywords and little Christian phrases and act all spiritual and not have anything inside. These were religious people, but they didn't know the God that they were claiming to worship. I'll close with this. I talked to my Aunt Mary a couple of days ago. Not the Aunt Mary that you met. A different Aunt Mary. Um, and she was telling me about a real close friend that my mother and her grew up with, and I don't even remember this friend, uh, but she said that they were inseparable, and she was telling me about her friend's granddaughter who lived in Spokane. Beautiful, beautiful young girl, three, uh, two, uh, 
three-year-old twin girls in church their whole life, very active in church, loved the Lord, husband uh, that loved her, and, and they were the ideal, the classic couple. Everybody looked at them and said, this is the perfect Christian family. 26 years old, and she shot herself to death a couple of days ago. And out of curiosity, I thought, what triggers something like that? I don't remember this family as a child. I don't recall them. Just out of curiosity, I looked her up on Facebook and I started reading her posts up until the day she died. And there was posts, there was a lot of Joel Olstein quotes, one after another. There was quotes uh, from other, uh, what would you say, self-help or, or happy-go-lucky type things. But she had had some physical problems a couple of months ago, and, and I was reading this post that she was talking about how thankful she was for people during that time and how they helped her and that the people had rallied around her. And she said, most of all, I'm so thankful for my Lord Jesus Christ because I know that I can rely on him for everything, and I trust him 100% in any situation. And then another post talked about her husband and how he had been there for her and how he was the perfect one that God made for her. And God had provided him for her and, and made her life so joyful and happy because of this relationship with her husband. This was a young girl who was quoting religious stuff. And I'm not judging her, believe me, and I'm not judging anybody else involved in this. I'm saying that you can say all the Christian stuff and still be destroyed inside. It's not a Christian quip that's going to get you through. It's not a Joel Osteen quip that's going to get you through. It's not knowing the right little phrases to say, oh, I believe God in every situation. Do you? Do you really know the God that you're saying that you believe? Do you really know the man, the God, the King that you say you know? Because there's so many that are saying, I know, but they don't even know Him. It is like Israel proclaiming and screaming and hollering for a Jesus that they had no idea who he was. I have no idea if this girl ever actually knew Jesus, but I want to leave you with this. Once again, when somebody walks into this door, they can put a big smile on their face. They can be all giddy and happy, and they can say, oh, God's been so good to me this week. I have been so blessed. And inside they can be dying. And that's why we as God's people, first of all, must know Jesus Christ. Yes. Not some guy named Jesus. We have to know Jesus Christ, the one true and almighty God. Why? Because we can't give what we don't have. Amen. If we don't need, know Jesus, we can't give Jesus. And then we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit to tell us and lead us to those people. Because this beautiful young girl took her life. And nobody understood it. Her husband had no idea. And she left two three-year-old girls. Her family is devastated. It was a fertile thing from their minds. And sometimes when God wakes you up and says, pray for Peggy, pray for Devin, pray for Jim, pray, you better stop and you better pray. No matter what time it is, no matter what's going on, you better stop and pray. The Holy Spirit doesn't put somebody's name in your heart without there being a reason for it. And you can see them the next time, and they can be all giddy and smiley and happy and think, why did I need to pray for them? They're fine. You have no idea 
what's going on in the real man, the inner man. And so when we come to church and everybody comes in and they're happy and smiles and giddy and all that, you have no idea she went to church a week ago. That young girl went to church a week ago, holding her babies, walking arm in arm with her husband. And nobody knew, but the Spirit of God knew. We've got to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and realize that so much of it's just a front. We've got to get past that and realize that there's a person inside of there, and that person can be crushed, even with a big smile on their face. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father. I have felt the weight of this message, Lord, for weeks now. Lord, I feel it so heavy now, God, and I pray that you can use me and my frailty to bring out a message that can touch lives here, Lord. God, sometimes we envision you in the way the media has made you to look, the way some big-name preacher has made you to look. And sometimes the one that we're proclaiming as Jesus is nowhere near who you truly are. Israel thought they knew who they were celebrating, but they hadn't a clue. His disciples, your disciples didn't even know what was going on. And God, I pray that you will teach us who you really are. No show, no warped ideas of the God that you are, the man that you were, Lord. Help us to understand who you are. Help us never to follow you because we want to see something. We want to experience something. And we want to get something. Help us, Lord, to worship you because of who you are. Who you are is what is so important, not what you have done and not what you're going to do, but who you are. Teach us to know you, God. Teach us who you truly, genuinely are. Hallelujah.